Bonjour et bienvenue. Je m'appelle Alex Clark. And do not worry, that's the last bit of French I'm going to attempt. Apart from the words Tour de France, the epic cycling road race kicks off later this week in, of all unlikely places, Leeds. And to celebrate, we'll be talking to Tim Moore, the author of Geronimo and French Revolutions, Ellis Bacon, the co-editor of the Cycling Anthology, which is now in its fourth volume, and Max Leathered, author of L'Antin Rouge, which is the story of the last man in the Tour de France. And first, I am delighted to be joined by Tim Moore, who, um, well, not content with one incredibly long, arduous um, cycle race, has been round two. Tim, your current book, your new book, is called Geronimo, and it's about riding the Giro d'Italia. But you've also written, of course, about riding the Tour de France. We'll come on to that a bit later. Let's start with Geronimo. Why? Uh, that's a very good question, one I regularly ask myself still to this day. Um, I think it was, uh, you know, French Revolutions, which I did. Um, so I cycled the route to the Tour de France in 2000, quite a long time ago when I was uh, much younger and fitter. Uh, and since then, of course, um, I suppose, like a lot of people, I've slightly fallen out of love with cycling because of the revelations about Lance Armstrong and co. What with the passing of years as well, I thought, well, I've just got time to set myself one last massively over-ambitious challenge and rediscover my love of cycling by going back to the roots of cycling and, and a, an age of sort of nobler, untarnished heroes, which led me um, rather abruptly and strangely to discovering the worst ever cycling race in history, the 1914 Tour of Italy, the Giro, uh, which 81 riders started and only eight people managed to finish. And the more I got into the idea of this, of this terrible challenge, I thought, OK, well, I'll... I'll you know, uh, go where they went and, and then I'll ride, ride what they rode and wear what they wore. So I got myself a 100-year-old bicycle and dressed up like an Edwardian cycling idiot and uh, took this on. Oh, so you made it easy for yourself. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes, of course, because back in those days they um, didn't have any gears, obviously. So riding up uh, the Alps, which I had to do almost straight away, was, was not a barrel of loss. And because the wheels on these bikes and on my bike were made out of wood, you have to use cork to slow them down. You can't use rubber because the rubber apparently gets really hot and melts. So I had these wine corks, which I used to make every evening, something to give me something to do in the evenings. And going down the Alps with corks for brakes was uh, probably the single most terrifying moment of my life, actually. Because I mean, they, it sounds they... actually beyond just a sort of bit of thrill-seeking. It sounds actually, <laughs> literally terrifying. It was literally terrifying. I had to, in the end, um, take my feet out of the pedals and, and put them on the floor at, at, at some catastrophic speed. And uh, Very, very high up in the air. Very high up in the air. Several thousand feet up in the air. I remember kind of getting halfway down and thinking, oh, well, it must be nearly to finish now. And I realised I was still as high as Ben Nevis. <laughs> now, one of the things, obviously, that, that uh, cycling spectators such as myself I am not a cyclist but I love to watch it and of course one of the things that we love when we're watching the Giro or the Tour is just this absolutely stunning scenery, I mean amazing views, you know these terrible sheer drops that you fear disaster happening on these beautiful chateaux, these lovely rivers, do you really see any of that when you're doing this kind of cycling? In the Alpine section I just referred to, no, it was just a kind of like nauseating blur out of my peripheral vision. But luckily, because I'm quite old and really unfit, uh, otherwise I was at trundling speed a lot of the time. I think when I, at the end I calculated my average speed and compared it to the guy who won this 1914 Giro. And had I been in that race, he would have beaten me back to Milan by 53 hours and 13 minutes. 
two full days. Um, so I wasn't going massively fast. So yes, Italy is a very beautiful country. It was, it was the middle of summer. It was glorious, really. So I had ample opportunity to, to you know, uh, there was a, I had to struggle against the, as I kept thinking of it, the holiday tendency. So occasionally there would be times when I'm thinking. I'm having lunch outside, uh, you know, a lovely church, looking at the the kind of Italian ladies go by. Oh, hang on a minute! No, I'm supposed to be struggling through the most appalling sporting challenge in history. Better get up and get back on my bike. Let's bring us down to basics here. How long? How many days? Right. Well, it was. How um, high? Yes. It was. It was. It was three thousand one hundred twenty-six kilometers. In the end, because I used to get lost quite a lot, I think I did about three thousand three hundred. Back in 1914, I mean, it just every time I think about these, it really just, just beggars belief. They did it in eight stages. I mean, they did have a, a day off in between, so it took them 16 days in all, but that meant they average, their average stage was over 400 kilometres long. They used to start at midnight, cycle through the night on these like terrible gravel roads with, uh, in awful weather, I have to say, because also the Giro starts in, in May at a time when there's lots of snow around. Um, which really partly, well, almost totally explains the terrible rate of attrition, whereas I took five weeks. Having said that, I did average very slightly more. I averaged just over 100 kilometres a day, which is a little bit more than I managed when I did French Revolutions 12 years ago. So clearly I am, I am one, of, one, of, well, yeah, one of the great undiscovered challenges, uh, you know, kind of talents in, in cycling. Well, we have to sort of come on to this thing. I feel I can speak plainly to you because we are, we are of an age <laughs> and you are undoubtedly fitter than I am. But... One of the issues about getting a bit older is not expending that effort in one burst. It's what happens the next day, isn't it? It's when you wake up and the joints are really creaking and the foot goes to the floor and you just think, oh, I'm going to fall over. That must have happened a bit. It happened a lot, actually. In fact, on the first day, because, of course, I had this this 100-year-old bicycle and there was a certain element of uh, sympathy with really old things like me and my bike kind of like hobbling up to the start line and getting off. The saddle completely snapped in half, the original 100-year-old saddle on the first day. And more or less exactly that time, my knee, my right knee, went into some sort of spasm, which meant that I could only cycle. I couldn't walk. When I got off the bike, I was like, kind of, I, you know, I had to, it was like sort of Douglas Barder's. I actually had to put my leg in a sort of rigid position as if it was one solid implement and sort of physically, physically handle my leg up the road. Um, so that wasn't, it wasn't great. But I think in the end, if you just... Yeah, I just if you just start every day and did I maybe maybe I went through the pain barrier maybe that's it again again you see I'm clearly a man of, of uh, unexpected depths physically did and everything else. Did you ever feel like giving up? Did you ever think no? Actually, what am I doing? This is crazy. In the first fortnight, a lot actually, particularly this moment when the when the bike kind of started to break and the bike did regularly kind of uh, you know t- towards the end the, the the wooden wheels were like all over the place. It was like riding a horse really rather than a bicycle and. Uh, you know, spokes were falling out. Because one of the things about French revolutions is that I, you know, cheated a lot because I thought that was in the spirit of cycling. Cycling is all about cheating, really. It's all about kind of how can you get one over on your competitors and the event organisers and if you can take a shortcut without anyone seeing you do it. So I did loads of that and snipped off, you know, quite a hefty chunk of the route at the beginning because it it went north and I wanted to go to where all the sunflowers were and all the nice French stuff. (laughs) But this time I thought, I'm not going to do that. I am actually going to make sure I cover every single kilometre Partly, really, in tribute to the, these these men who did this stuff on a, you know the, you know on a diet of raw eggs and red wine, which I must say was something else I didn't emulate. At least one no, of those two things was something. I hope, like, I hope had a a little bit more substance than that. Yeah, pe- pizza and red wine. <laughs> <laughs> you must have cut quite a figure in your in your goggles and on your wooden bike. Did were people absolutely intrigued by you? 
Intrigued would be one word. Um, supportive. I mean, lots of because Italians do really revere that their their kind of heroic age of um, you know cycling when they when they ruled the world. So you know, old men outside campus would leap to their feet and shout out the names of the heroes of their youth. Also, a little bit of um, you, know, you know they were they were kind of concerned. That I, I was instantly identified as English, even though I before I even met my mother. Oh, you are crazy English, just because I looked like I was doing something eccentric, unusual, and an element of fear because I'd look very very strange with these goggles on, and um, you know, in little villages, mothers would get their children close to their skirts until the bad man had gone past. <laughs> now, obviously, we've all gone cycling crazy this year in particular because the Giro started in Belfast. We're going to have later this week the tour starting in Yorkshire and finally coming down to London. Are you back in love, do you think, with cycling? Have you have you managed to to feel a bit better about some of those dreadful things that have gone on over the last few years? Yes, oh, completely. I mean, and I think even really, I mean... Uh, you can't really have had any affection for cycling at any point without being aware that people were cheating and taking performance-enhancing substances. Even back in my day, 1914, I discovered they were all on strychnine, which sounds a little bit improbable. It apparently has a... Dangerous a, too. Yes, a crude but very, very dangerous um, amphetamine-style effect. So I didn't... I think it was really a lot of it about Lance Armstrong. It wasn't the fact that he was, uh, you know, doping or whatever. He was just a just a not very nice person. So, um, so yes, I didn't really ever lose the the my high regard for the for the heroes of, of various ages. But yeah, this year it's um it's been superb. This year, I mean, I like I can't get enough of it. Every, everywhere you go, I mean, it seems that this every time I go out in the street, there seems to be about another fifty percent more cyclists on the road. I think it's You've it's cycled I'm, one of the stages, haven't you? You've cycled one of the Yorkshire stages. I did. I went up to Yorkshire, and it's interesting comparing exactly because I also did the same thing when the tour started in London, which I think was seven years ago, something like that. Well, that was a good event, but uh, it was very much that was a, an inside thing just for people who were really a bit, you know, sort of nerdy cyclists. This time, in the whole of Yorkshire, I mean, every every little tiny village has like you know, kind of yellow bikes stuck to the outside of their houses and pork pies made in the shape of Bradley Wiggins sideburns. Actually, that's completely untrue, and I didn't want to say that, but uh, <laughs> but they really it's, it's somebody a good idea. <laughs> yes, it's it's so much more of a of a you know genuine event. I noticed that even the motorists are much more considerate of cyclists now, particularly in Yorkshire. And I think it's because they now have a sort of respect for for bikes that they didn't have you know, even even five years ago. I have to ask you. Final question, what crazy thing are you doing next? Well, actually, in fact, I was just talking to a, a guy yesterday who's from Eritrea, and he was telling me, uh, did you know that Eritrea, cycling is really big, but we haven't got any money, so we can only have these sort of these tours in Eritrea. Um, because apparently, well, it used to be an Italian colony, so they have a bit of an Italian culture, and they picked it up from that. So at the moment, I'm really quite interested in the idea of doing a tour of Eritrea, but we'll see how that pans out. OK, if you do that... You're, you have to pledge now to come back and tell us all about it. I'll, I'll try and do that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in and talking Thank you. to us today. And now I'm joined by Ellis Bacon, who's the co-editor with Lionel Burney of the Cycling Anthology, which is now in, Ellis, amazingly, its fourth volume. It is, yeah, I can't believe it's gone by that, that quickly, yes, having started at the end of uh, 2012 already on, on volume four, yeah. That obviously means that there's just great cycling writing around there. I mean, all the stuff in this book is specially commissioned, isn't it? It's it's new writing. It is, yeah, all, all original stuff. I mean, the, the idea came around it, it I, I must admit it was my, my co-editor's um, idea, Lionel Burney. He, um, he heard I was thinking about doing something similar um, for a website, which is still still pending actually but um yeah his idea was to sort of get together colleagues people we knew on magazines newspapers writing about professional bike racing specifically bring them all together in one book and kind of promote their writing and cycling writing in general 
for them to have a chance actually as well to write about something they wanted to write about rather than things that were, that were commissioned, you know, by magazines or newspapers. So yeah, it's got this kind so of free... So more time to do it. More exactly, kind of yeah, more time. Write about, you know, maybe a rider they particularly knew or particularly admired or liked and, yeah, just a bit more sort of a uh, pers- personal kind of essays they are really, um, perhaps a bit a bit different to, to the kind of thing they, they would normally write about. So, yeah, all, all original stuff, a very eclectic mix, I must say. Just take us through some of the highlights in this volume. In this volume, yeah, we've, we've got some great stuff. We've got um, William Fotheringham, who uh, a lot of people will have heard of, I think, um, one of Richard, Britain's finest uh, cycling journalists. Real great um, at writing about cycling, isn't he? You know, really... He, he is, yeah, yeah. Writer. He's, he's uh, well, he, he won't mind me saying he's... he's been around a little while and uh, yeah has has covered many Tour de France's and interviewed a lot of people and he he writes about another cycling journalist actually called Jock Wadley um, who was uh, kind of almost a sort of the founding father I suppose of of modern cycling journalism he he followed the Tour de France by by bike actually at first um, and would report for all the the big cycling magazines and was sort of quite a quite an integral part actually of the the first British team in 1955 the first British riders to complete the Tour de France I should say so he was there kind of helping them out a little bit it was all new for them and he kind of knew the knew the game already um, we've also got uh, Orla Chenoui from um, Sky one of the presenters on on Sky Sports who uh, again people will, will know she she writes about the Giro d'Italia the the Tour of Italy and what it's like to to follow a, a complete three-week race behind the scenes story I guess of it. Yes, I was very sort of um, I mean I must say I was intrigued when I saw her there because there are not very many women who write about cycling. Are there, there aren't really, no. I mean we, we well I won't, won't name names but we did ask a couple of um, female cycling journalists early on to, to um to uh, contribute and for various reasons it, it hadn't happened yet so we've got four volumes in before we've mm. had this female in, voice in but general it's, it's just it's a very male heavy it, it is arena, unfortunately it? yeah there aren't really very many um uh, female cycling journalists um women's cycling is sort of on on the up in britain the women's tour um earlier this year was a, a great success and we have had um some of the other writers writing about women's cycling but yeah Orla is the the first um it's a very very good piece you're right it, it's exactly what it is it's it's well it's called lights camera action isn't it it's that's sort right of about being kind of right there in the sort of glare of this of this great popularity i suppose and obviously that's important in part, I'm sure, what's fueled these anthologies, the fact that there's a real appetite, whereas before, obviously, people might have... Cycling fans and enthusiasts and people in the know would have wanted to write, read about um, cycling. Obviously, now much wider public wants to. Absolutely, yeah. It's a, it's a funny one, really, because there's always been a lot of great cycling, um, a lot of great cycling books around, um, strangely, even though it was quite not such a popular sport. But now it's now it's grown. There is this real hunger for it. And, yeah, more, more cycling books than ever, and they're already quite a lot but and I think I think the anthology kind of does a appeal across the board really I mean those already kind of in the know will will recognize uh, you know the, the names of the subjects and the the races and indeed the the writers but then yeah I think there's a lot in there as well for people who are completely new to the sport too I have to say one thing really stood out for me that I didn't expect to see Ken Russell's tour yes what I mean what, Ken Russell the, the kind of <laughs> legendary eccentric film director was surely not a not a cyclist not him no no just his <laughs> just his namesake so uh, yeah ken russell was the uh, the winner of the second tour of britain it was in uh, 1952 um and uh, a bit unique in that 
cycling cycling is very it's an individual sport but it's also a team sport it's this kind of funny mix and uh yes this ken russell was was on his own a, a, a one-man team a one-man band in the in the tour of britain and he managed to to win against all these other sort of bigger better teams if you like this is sort of at the heart of of cycling still despite its kind of great sophistication you know the really sort of high-tech teams and the structure that you know that surrounds them now but there is at the heart of what fascinates people this sort of epic idea of a kind of heroic rider battling against the elements and against the odds isn't there oh absolutely it was always in the beginning kind of very much a working class sport especially in in france and italy and i suppose it's it's kind of come Moved moved on to these days be quite a sort of I don't know you could call it almost a a poor man's Formula One it's all carbon fibre and aerodynamics and testing tech, in wind it? tunnels and things yeah absolutely mm. um, but yet it, yet it is still you know man and machine against the the elements really in the mountains and uh, it's it's still as epic as it as it ever was really well I guess what you feel is however much you know however good your bike is you can't change the fact that a mountain is sort of going up in the air and that, I mean that just looks as difficult whatever kind of bicycle that you're on oh absolutely i mean they they have all these yeah very very light lightweight machines to to help them out you sort of shed as much weight as as possible but still yeah it's um horrific really i've been lucky enough to to climb some of these mountains and you uh yeah it's it's extraordinary really and and that's the place to go if you've not seen bike racing before especially you know if you're watching the tour de france go to the the alps and the pyrenees and you you kind of see how how tough the sport is really and and the race is kind of blown apart there are riders everywhere and rather than the cliche of them all rushing past at once you kind of get get racing slowed down a little bit if you like and you 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 get to see your sort of heroes up close obviously you will watch um road races throughout the year and all sorts of other um cycling related events but the tour is something special isn't it it is yeah i mean it started in in 1903 and so it's got a bit of history behind it there are races even even older than that but there is there is something about the tour de france i think it's just or the the length of it for a start it's three weeks long there are only two other races a, a tour of spain and tour of italy that are that are that long and just uh yeah i guess that the fact it really is at the heartland of of cycling really where where it all began in 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 france and you know central europe i suppose so although it's it's coming here in, you know and there's a tour of britain which is i think it's 10 days long this these days it's uh yeah it's going to take a lot for any any other race i think to kind of catch up with the how just how big and and uh, yeah grand the the tour de france is and um, how do you see it shaping up this this year? What kind of a course is it, and and what are going to be the kind of big challenges? Do you think? Yeah, well, we're we're starting in in Leeds, of course, uh, in in Yorkshire this year. We've got uh, so rain, ra- rain probably. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Freezing cold. <laughs> yeah, it could be dreadful. No, I'm sure the sun will shine. So three days in Britain. The the third stage finishes in in London, and then they're back across the Channel to France, um, and into Belgium this year as well. Um, real chance, I think, for for Britain. Chris Froome again, who who won last year. Unfortunately, it's at least at this stage looking like there'll be no no Bradley Wiggins, who uh, of course won for one was the first British winner in 2012. Um, so I think Chris Froome's got a, a good chance, and the uh, the Spanish rider Alberto Contador is, is 
probably most likely to to challenge him. So yeah, it's a it's a great route that everything's there that you'd expect. Good great climbs in the in the Alps and the Pyrenees again. And uh, yes, after after three weeks, the the winner shall be crowned in Paris. And what do you do during this three weeks? Just do nothing else. Just <laughs> just kind of totally focus on the race. No, normally, when I'm there covering the race, I've 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 been there many times. But uh, yeah, this year I'm I'm doing various other bits and pieces. I'll be there at the at the start and possibly some of the some of the uh, other stages as well. But yeah, in an ideal world, I'd be. Uh, Lying on the settee, uh, watching the Tour de France with a glass of wine in my hand, perhaps. But uh, when you're actually on the race, it's uh, it's it's harder than people imagine. There's a, a lot of travel, a lot of trying to get to your hotel before the the last restaurant closes, and uh, that <laughs> that kind of thing. Quite quite tough, but enjoyable too. Well, we hope you really enjoy it. Um, we will. I'm afraid I will be enjoying it from the comfort of my my sofa. Oh, very nice. But um, <laughs> many thanks for joining us. And the cycling anthology, all four volumes are available in very very handsome uh, new jackets. They are indeed, yep. Our thanks to Ellis. And now, of course, we had to put this item last. I'm joined by Max Leonard, who's the author of Lantern Rouge. The Lantern Rouge is the last person to finish the Tour de France. What a thing to write a book about. Max, thanks so much for joining us today. I have to ask you first, did you cycle here? Not today, actually. No, I was on the bus because bus journeys around London are really the only time I get to read books. So I, I treasure them. That's a very good answer when you're coming into the publishing house to the studio, yes. isn't it? <laughs> um, just tell us about, I mean, you've written loads of stuff about cycling. You write for loads of blogs. You've written guides to cycling. What inspired you to write this book, Lantern Rouge, which, as we should explain, is about the poor chap who comes last? Yes, the Lantern Rouge is the name given to the uh, final rider in the Tour de France who comes in at the bottom of the general classification. And I guess he is a, a kind of fan's favourite, he's a popular figure among cycling fans. And I'd always been aware of it, and, but it wasn't really until I went and tried to do an etape, which is when they let amateurs um, loose on a stage of the Tour de France, that the idea really became ingrained in my mind um, when the professionals did the stage, it was beautiful weather. It was in the mountains in central France. When we did it, it was hailing. It was cold. We were in the clouds. And I gave up along with uh, approximately 2,000 other people. Ooh, and dear. Yeah. I mean, but if I was a professional, I would have probably kept on going. And, and the one thing the Lantern Rouge does not do is give up. So... That's really where the idea, the fixation, I should say, came from. Not to dwell on a kind of painful experience, <laughs> but how far had you got and how kind of uphill was it, as it were? Well, I think we got about 70 kilometres into a 210 kilometre stage. That sounds Down, pretty good to me. <laughs> well, it was a start. Down at the bottom where we started, it was raining. Uh, then we climbed pretty high to about 1,200 metres uh, where it just became a terrible storm and hail and it was July so we were wearing you know summer clothes and cycling summer clothes are, are pretty uh, thin and by the time we descended the first mountain to where there was a feed stop we all uh, were blue and shivering and couldn't use the brakes because our hands were frozen um, and so I, I took the what someone says easy way out and got on a coach don't think it sounds awfully easy at <laughs> 70 kilometres in. Um, but as you were saying, the Lantern Rouge in the in the race, and is it like the other uh, the other accolades that get given on a daily basis? Is there a daily Lantern Rouge? Does it sort of change hands? Well, 
It's different from most accolades for the toy in that it's not an official classification. It's always been something that the fans like. I guess, you know, my view, and I think the French are kind of like the English in the fact that they like losers and it's a kind of underdog feeling. But it's never been official and, and the tour uh, administration has often been hostile towards the idea because I guess they feel that it uh, can be seen as a celebration of failure or, you know, glorifying losing. And really, I, I think that's completely the opposite, you know, from what most fans like about it you know they like this this person who continues its persistence its dedication its determination um but yeah you get the lantern rouge at the end of every stage it's the guy who's at the bottom of the general classification and uh, when you get to paris you know his position as last is forever engraved into history i suppose i i i mean i agree with you entirely because it's so Arduous. I mean, it's so astonishingly uh, demanding of the sort of feats of endurance that you kind of feel that anybody who carries on and does it, you know, nobody can be a loser. But obviously somebody does come last. And I suppose from um, from the authorities' point of view, there's something sort of inherently comical in a way about awarding this kind of, you know, the, well, faux accolade. Yeah, I think I think maybe they think that it takes takes the attention off off you know the the winner in the front of the race and you know all these people doing heroic valiant you know things in in order to win the yellow jersey um but in the old days when i mean pre second world war the conditions were pretty terrible i mean roads were rubbish there wasn't a kind of same team system that we have so you know it was really Often it was, you know, guys on their own doing their thing. Um, and presumably nothing was as high-tech in terms of, you know, the drinks and food that you could take along on, on the way, the kind of repairs that get made to the bikes. No, it was kind of tyrannical. I mean, even in, into the 50s and 60s, they were, were only allowed to take certain food and drink from certain places. You weren't allowed to, um, you know, take stuff from the side of the road or have your team give you things. Bicycles would all you know, fall apart. So you'd have to look after your, you know, you had one bicycle, you had to do the repairs yourself. Um, my land, one of the Lantern Rouges I, f- I feature from 1955 was partly consigned to last place because um, of a very bad batch of tyres his team had. And in those days, you had to change a puncture on the road instead of get given a new wheel like you would these days. So they, the whole team spent hours and hours changing punctures. Um, but and let's it, just make one thing clear. Mm. If you don't finish a stage, if, for example, you know, your wheel comes off, whatever, you're out, aren't you? You have to cycle every yard of the Tour de France course. You do. And um, from very early on in the race's history, there's been a time cut elimination. So you have to come within a certain percentage of the winner's time, which is calculated depending on whether it's a flat stage or a mountainous stage, with more or less leeway from how the winner's done to give the slower people time to get up the hills and down again. Just tell us a bit then about the book and about what happened when you started to compile it. Tell us a little bit about some of the characters that you came across. Well, I suppose I looked through lists of people from all through the tour's history and I didn't want to go, you know, and in 1903 this happened, in 1910 this happened, and so... I really tried to identify the best or most interesting riders who were out there, either well, for all sorts of different reasons, really. Including know. the people who occasionally stopped to have a glass of wine and, and cycled the wrong way. Yes, I mean, that's, that's a pretty, that's a kind of story that's passed into tour legend, but there's a whole chapter on this guy, Abdul Qadir Zaf, um, who supposedly in 19... 
50 um, during a heat wave was out on a, a lone well, breakaway with one of his teammates while everyone else was going slow because it was so hot. And it started kind of zigzagging across the road, very close to the finish line, or well, a few kilometres anyway. Picked a bottle off a spectator, downed it in one, but didn't have water in as he was expecting. It was wine. Uh, Abdul oh Kadir, I know, and, and Zaf was on the first North African team and he was uh, from Algeria and he was a, uh, an observant Muslim. So I think even for uh, someone who's used to alcohol in a heat wave, it would be bad news. But for someone who doesn't touch drink at all here, it was it was terrible. And he collapsed and was laid out under a tree. Oh, dear. Yeah, and so that year, well... But he obviously completed. He, he obviously sort of recovered himself. No, no, that year he didn't, actually. That year he that got on his bike. Year. Yeah, he got on his bike after collapsing and started riding the wrong way. Uh, so he didn't make the finish line. He was, he was eliminated in tears, they say. Uh, well, no, I thought this was going to be a humorous story. It's actually <laughs> terribly tragic. I feel awfully sorry for him. Tell me that yeah. something good happened to him in his subsequent career. Well, the, the next year he was he was uh, Lantern Rouge, which is <laughs> at least... Was an he, improvement. At least he managed to finish. Yeah, no, I don't know if the wine story... I mean, the whole chapter is about these stories we tell about the tour and about legends that may or may not be true. Of course. And I don't know if, if he really did drink wine, but he was a very savvy and very interesting guy. And he certainly capitalised on this funny infamy that he'd achieved. And so he appeared in ads for tonic wine and that kind of thing. And I think probably made quite a lot of money out of it, which was uh, entirely his aim. Obviously, there are lots of long distance uh, cycling road races, but none looms as large in the collective imagination of cycling fans and indeed non-cycling fans as the Tour de France. Um, To be a rider in it, I mean, you have to be a fantastic rider with it and a fantastic athlete. So obviously nobody goes into this knowing that they're going to become the Lantern Rouge. What does it mean for them, do you think, subsequently? I think some of them were... I guess that they start off being ashamed, some of them, or it's a kind of awkward moment because you're right, no one goes into a race thinking that they're going to come last um, and they would have had whatever their... I guess whatever their situation, they would have had other plans for the race. A lot of them are very young guys who are in their first Tour de France and they're finding it quite tough to to keep up. It's a kind of process of acclimatisation. Some of them are sprinters um, who have particular difficulty in the mountains because, you know, they're the beefier guys who you know, have all this uh, muscle to propel them very fast at the end of the stages um, but not really aren't really suited to going uphill very fast. Some of them are domestique, so they're helper riders who look after their team leaders and pretty much do everything they can to, to stop the team leader expending energy. Some, but when they when they do come last, some some of them actually race for last because back in the sixties and seventies, especially when salaries were pretty bad, they uh, the Lantern Rouge would get invited to all the post tour races, and so you'd get quite lucrative contracts and could make two or three times your salary apparently and so there's a point where if you know you're doing badly you might as well really go for broke and and come actually last yeah a lot of them have expressed that feeling to me is that you know it's a way of getting your name in the record books they are pretty you know these days there's about 200 riders in the tour they're pretty much the 200 you know top riders in the world uh what they do and so they're all very 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 exceptional athletes and exceptional people and coming last I don't think any professional rider sees it as a kind of mark of shame 
because you've, you've you've completed. And of course, all the people who've been eliminated on time grounds, I mean, you've done better than then. Just just tell us, um, finally, obviously, this is a fantastic year for the tour in, in terms of us, because it's starting here, it's riding out from here. Um, you must be very excited by that. I assume you're going to kind of go along and see it. And what do you what are your hopes for this year's tour? This year, I'm really looking forward to going to Yorkshire and, and seeing it up there. I've actually ridden the stage from Cambridge to London, finishing on the mouth, so that's going to be fun. Uh, remember, last time the tour was in the UK in 2007, I was in France watching it on TV, which was a bit uh, surreal. Uh, so I, I will be very uh, keen to see it here. I think unless something goes badly wrong on the cobblestones in northern France, I think there will probably be another British victory for Team Sky. So that's also um, something to look forward to. But really, it's the mountains for me. That's what I like seeing, and that's where I like riding. So I'm, you know, while Yorkshire will be beautiful and it'd be lovely to see them in London, I can't wait for them to get to the Alps, really. Thanks very much for coming in today. Thank you. My thanks to Max, to Ellis and to Tim. And all three of those authors will be up in Yorkshire at the Rafa Tempest Festival and the Dare to Be Cycling Festival. For more details of how you can join them, go and listen to what they have to say and have your book signed, go to vintage-books.co.uk. And that's all from me, Alex Clark, but I'll be back next month for our Great War special. Do please join us then and thanks for listening.